0: We are beginning uh, a series on uh, Paul's letter to Titus this morning. And um, it's going to be about broken up into about five uh, sermons, is kind of my plan. Um, It's a short book. Titus is only about uh, three chapters long. And. so, from what I could find, there isn't a whole lot of agreement among uh, scholars on when the letter was written, but we do know a good bit about who Titus was and Paul's purpose in writing the letter, and it breaks down to, into several sections. We have an introduction, in which we're going to go through today, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, uh, and, uh, and then in the next section, in the first chapter, Paul talks about his purpose for leaving Titus in Crete, uh, to, which is to appoint elders. Uh, talks about qualifications for elders in the first chapter there 's a, a refutation of false teachers at, at the last part of the first chapter in chapter two, Paul writes about uh, church and family life and goes on to explain the expected fruit of god 's grace in a believer 's life and then in chapter three, uh, Paul talks about what it means to uh, to do good um, and uh, that 's what we were we were made for that's what uh, Christians ought to do. Uh, He tells Titus, kind of his purpose in writing this letter, he tells Titus to put things in order and teach what accords with with sound doctrine. And one of the first ways that he instructed Titus to do that was to appoint elders uh, who will shepherd God's people and teach them so that their faith will be strengthened, as Paul says, according to godliness and and knowledge of the truth. Um, So let's put the, we probably have the verses on the screen, Titus 1, 1 through 4, uh, just a little more background before I read the verses, and, and I'll, I'll pray uh, for us, but um, a little bit about what Crete was like. Uh, the island, Crete is an island uh, off the coast of um, Greece, and um, in the New Testament times, life in Crete had sunk to a, a pretty deplorable moral level. The, the dishonesty and gluttony and laziness of the people of Crete were, as we say, proverbial. So you probably might have even heard it today if you hear somebody say, that's something a Cretan would do. Anybody ever heard that expression? It's amazing how long these kinds of expressions can endure. Um, but that, that's, that's one of the proverbs of, you know, this, uh, that's something a Cretan would do. It's one of the sayings. Um, and interestingly enough, in, in contrast to that, this letter to Titus, Paul's letter to Titus brings out a, what we might call the The civilizing effect of Christianity. You see this especially in uh, chapter 2 where Paul talks about how older men are to behave, how younger Christian men are to behave, uh, older women are to behave this way, younger women this way, slaves this way, submit to authorities, be dedicated to good works. Uh, All those things are found, in all those teachings are found in Titus. Uh, A little bit about who Titus was. He was a Gentile convert, so he wasn't Jewish, he was... uh, a Gentile convert and a longtime companion of Paul. He was obviously, we see from the New Testament he was someone that, that Paul had a lot of trust in, and someone that Paul was always able to rely on. Uh, Titus was actually chosen by Paul to help sort out some of the problems in the Corinthian church. And we know this from Second Corinthians, chapter two, chapter seven, chapter eight and chapter 12. His, his name is mentioned over and over in those, in those sections. And he was most likely the man who delivered at least one, if not several, of Paul's letters to the church in Corinth. And Titus was the one who brought back the good news back to Paul of the Corinthians' repentance. Well, you can read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So that's just a bit of, of, about the background um, and, uh, on the letter on the island of Crete and the person of Titus. So let's get into this uh, first section here, this introduction. I'll read it and pray, and then we'll go from there. It reads, Paul, a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted, by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your inerrant authoritative word uh, your perfect word that has been passed down to us from generation to generation we thank you for this letter and we pray that as we look at it together as we read it that you would um, enlighten our hearts Lord and that you would build our faith Uh, we pray that you would use these uh, few minutes that we have together for your glory and for our good it's in Jesus name that we pray Amen. Amen So just a short number of verses, only four verses uh, this morning, but um, there's actually a lot here, a lot more than might first uh, meet the eye when, we've, when we first read it. So let's first talk about how Paul refers to himself. He says, Paul, a servant of God, but the, and that's what it says in the ESV, a lot of other English translations uh, translate that word servant just that way as, as the word servant, but the word in Greek is the word doulos, and it's it's not quite as uh, as nice, <laughs> I guess I would say, as uh, as the word servant. It actually means slave. Uh, the word doulos is is the word for slave in Greek, and so that's kind of more the full sense of the word. There's another word for servant in the th- throughout the New Testament, diakonos, which is the the word in Greek is. What we probably think of uh, in English as really what a a servant would be. But a doulos is a slave. And we see this from texts like uh, Colossians 3.11 where Paul describes, he actually describes different classes and ethnicities of people. He talks about barbarian, Scythian, slave, again that word doulos, uh, uh, slave and free man. And so that's actually the word that that Paul is using. He's he's Basically, it's like saying Paul, a slave of God. Um, So, and to be a slave means to actually be owned by someone else. And that's how Paul sees himself as being owned by Jesus Christ. To be a slave means to be devoted to another, to your master, to the disregard of your own interests. And believe it or not, that's what Jesus says are the conditions of being his disciple. In Matthew ten twenty four to 25 Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and the slave like his master. And in Luke 14, Jesus says, So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Throughout the New Testament, the authors of the New Testament—Peter, Paul, and James—all re- use this this word, this word doula, so They refer to themselves as slaves in the introductions of their letters in the New Testament. We tend to recoil from that idea uh, in our day as you know, as modern Americans. We we cherish our freedom and uh, value our freedom as Americans, but the way the New Testament puts it. As as a heart of a truth as this may be, if you're not a slave, you're not saved. If you you haven't surrendered everything you have to the service of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's only someone who does that who is a a genuine Christian. So Jesus is not an addition to anybody's life. He's not a a hellfire insurance policy. He's either your master or your enemy. The New Testament gives us stark contrast. But... Jesus is a good slave master and he he also sets us free. There's a sense in which Jesus is both a slave owner and an abolitionist because Jesus promises real freedom and delivers while at the same time making us joyful slaves of righteousness. Uh, Christ provides better freedom than any idols can offer. He, He provides better, more fulfilling service than slavery to sin. His yoke is easy, and His burden is light, he says. And and Paul writes about this a lot more in Romans 6. And he characterizes new life in Christ exactly this way. He says in Romans 6, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life people think that they want to be free to run their own life and we don't want anyone else telling us what to do and we don't realize that that's been the problem all along right because the way the bible puts it you're either free from free from righteousness and enslaved to sin or you're enslaved to God and freed from sin and I can testify that being my own master resulted in a lot of bad decisions, a lot of bad choices, and a lot of uh, destruction in my life. And the turning point was when it was reached when I surrendered my life to Christ. And so that's a question that we should all ask ourselves this morning. Have you surrendered your life to Christ? There is a, um, a Chris Tomlin song that I think puts how this looks really well. It's called I Will Follow. And the chorus of the song goes like this. It goes, Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow. Who you love, I'll love. How you serve, I'll serve. With this life, I lose. I will follow you. And of course, all the commands and principles to carry out our service are laid out for us in the Bible. Where do we go? We go to our neighbors, uh, you know, anyone who needs us, um, and even uh, to all the ends of the earth to share the gospel. Where do we stay? We stay with our husbands and wives till death do us part, right? We, we stay with uh, our kids until they're grown. Even after that, we're to be there for them, with aging parents to care for them, with other uh, church family members who are lonely and need a friend. Who do we love and serve? We, God has called us to love and serve everyone, uh, whoever has a need and, and, and that we can meet is our neighbor. That's what, what, what Jesus said in the parable of the, the Good Samaritan. He said, basically, telling this guy, whoever uh, has a need is your neighbor, that you can meet as your neighbor. And we, and we do it because we're not our own. We don't live for ourselves anymore. We live and die for our good master. So Paul sees himself as a slave of Christ, but he's also an apostle, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Right, so, so, that, so that means he was called by Christ. He was qualified and, and sent by Christ to preach the gospel. He had his commission and his, doctrine, his, his teaching from him. He was an ambassador of Christ who represented him and preached him. And, he, uh, and God demonstrated this by working miracles through Paul to confirm his, his mission and ministry. And so he had all the signs and proofs of an apostle. And so we notice that this kind of ironic, uh, it's kind of an ironic statement in the sense, Paul a servant of God or a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ in which like the lowest office of a slave or a servant is also the highest. He's, he's also, it's also the highest office as an apostle. And this is the way that Jesus said it would be with his followers. In Luke 22, he said, uh, he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but it is not this way with you. But the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. It's amazing to think about the fact that being a Christian may be a lowly position in the eyes of the world, but there's actually no higher honor and, and, and privilege. is to be called by God and to be God's child. The next part of the verse 1, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, or those chosen by God. What does it mean uh, to have the faith of those chosen by God? Uh, John Gill, in his commentary on this verse, said, There is a special faith that belongs to these, which is a spiritual looking to Christ, a going to Him, a laying hold of and leaning on Him and trusting in Him for salvation. And this faith is peculiar to the elect of God. All men have it not, and those that have it have it through the free gift of God. Nor is it given to any but to the chosen ones. The reason why the Jews did not believe in Christ was because they were not of this number, John 10.26. And and this faith is secured and made sure to them by their election. They are chosen to it and through it to salvation. They believe in consequence and by virtue of it and, and certainly obtain it in all ages as well as righteousness, life, and salvation. And it is that by which they are known to be the elect of God. And the apostle mentions it in this form and manner to distinguish it. So to set it apart from other kinds of faith, from other faith, the faith of devils, the faith of reprobates, and the historical and temporal faith of hypocrites and nominal professors. So, yeah, it's a lot, they uh, had a much higher vocabulary back then than I do today. But, uh, so in other words, there are all kinds of faith, but only one kind of faith saves And the kind of faith that saves can only come from God and be given by God. Okay, and then Paul says, "For the knowledge, their knowledge of the truth, which accords to God, accords with godliness. Knowledge of the truth is according to godliness. What does that mean? So I think what Paul is communicating here is that knowing truth actually has a moral component to it. It's it's more than an acquisition of facts, um, and so this is one of the most important distinct, distinctions between what our secular culture uh, teaches and believes today, and what the Bible teaches. If you were to ask just somebody who you know hasn't grown up in church, doesn't doesn't know the Bible, doesn't believe the Bible about these kinds of things, about their kind of their belief about truth, their philosophy of truth, you know what would they tell you? They usually people think that. There are certain truths that might be that might have to be universally accepted. Two plus two equals four, right? Uh, you ever noticed? You know, nobody argues over the um, what the Pythagorean theorem is. That's not really a hot debate. But people do argue about what marriage is, <laughs> or what family is, and that's that that that's often a uh, hotly debated. And so the sec- secular thought is that you know there are some things. That, like truths that should be universally accepted, but other truths, especially moral truths, ethical truths, are more relative and should not be universally uh, believed or accepted. But the Bible flatly contradicts this. In verses like Proverbs 1-7, Proverbs 1-7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What does that mean? Well, in other words, you in order to know anything rightly, you have to begin with God and His revelation. You have to acknowledge God's existence and understand that He is the ultimate. He is the ultimate authority and the ultimate purpose of life because if you don't start with God, you can end up redefining even things today that we, you, in the past we thought were pretty uh, scientifically objective, like biological sex, for example, to, to suit your own desires, So the point is that, like, we look back, a lot of people today, they look back at ancient myths and stories of how the the world began. I remember reading, I think it was at the, we were at the Norfolk Zoo one time, and I remember seeing, we were in this section about uh, China, and the beginnings of China, and some of the myths that were believed about how the world were created, and I wanted to say it was like uh, a cosmic bird laid an egg, or... (laughs) Or some snake was chopped up, like cosmic snake was chopped up into bits. and So we look back at these stories and we think, we think oh, aren't we so much smarter today? <laughs> aren't we so much wiser today? Because we have a, a whole lot more information while we deny even basic biology of who's male and who's female. Um, and so don't think that, we shouldn't think that, you know, people made up ridiculous stories just because of a lack of information or that people believe certain things today just because we have more information, what we, should, what we should realize is that sin affects your mind. It affects how you understand the world. It affects, so, in other words, like, don't think that you know, scientists, a lot of scientists believe today that we evolved from bacteria, or the, the world is billions of years old, and things like that, or just because we have more information. No, it's because of Romans 1. People will believe anything rather than believing in him. Everybody know who Ben Stein is? Bueller, Bueller. I'm showing my age. Maybe a lot of the younger people might not know who that is. But he's an actor. He did this um, uh, movie one time called Expelled. Anybody seen Expelled? I'm probably the only one. Ever. Oh yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> hey, all right. Um, so, so he did this movie called Expelled, and, and in one of the scenes of the movie, he interviews a famous atheist named Richard Dawkins. Richard, Richard Dawkins is a famous atheist, and uh, he keeps asking, the movie is basically about how in, uh, the teaching of intelligent design, the obvious truth that the universe has a designer, that you see evidence for it all over the place, like creation, creation has to have a creator, it's a, you know, and so there are people teaching this and it's being suppressed, and pe- you know, professors are losing their jobs, and th- so that's what the movie is about, and uh, he interviews Richard Dawkins... And he asked Richard Dawkins, you know, where did all of this come from? Where, you know, I actually went back and looked at the clip and I uh, saved it on my phone. because I. And this isn't an exact quote, but hopefully this is pretty close. So Ben Stein asked R- Richard Dawkins, well, you know, if you don't know who, who who created the earth, you don't believe that God created it, like where did it come from? And this is basically what Dawkins says. He says, well, I suppose it's possible that at some earlier time, Another civilization from somewhere else in the universe designed a form of life that they seeded onto this planet. And you might find evidence for that. You might find a signature for some kind of designer, but that designer would have to come about by some Darwinian process, some explicable process. It couldn't have just jumped into an existence. In other words, maybe aliens, but not God. Yeah, maybe aliens implanted life on Earth, and you know that's 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 a possibility that I will entertain, but not God created it. I won't entertain that possibility. So the point is that accepting and believing truth requires more than just learning facts. It requires humility toward and knowledge of God. Truth is according to godliness. Truth accords with godliness. And so that, this also means that if our Bible knowledge does not produce a godly life, then maybe we haven't come to a genuine knowledge or belief in the truth. The truths of Scripture have an influence both on internal and external godliness. They direct and promote the worship and fear of God and a religious, righteous, sober, and godly life because truth, is, truth accords with godliness. They go hand in hand, like you can't have one without the other. So it's not enough just to get into the, the Word. I mean, we, you know, we have to get into the Word. We must get into the Word. There's no growth without getting into the Word, but it can't stop there. The Word has to get into us. It must get into us and change our thoughts and our attitudes and our worldview. We can know the truth without really knowing the truth, without really believing the truth. New, new affections and disciplines and practices must be cultivated before we can really live in certain realities. There are all kinds of everyday illustrations of this. Let's say I have in my hand water. Pretend I have in my other hand a milkshake, right? I know that this milkshake is bad for me. It's full of sugar and fat, tastes great going down, but after I have it, I'm going to be good for nothing except sitting on the couch, right? I believe I should just have a glass of water, stick to my diet. At the end of the day, I'll feel better, you know, i i have made the healthier choice. So, what am I going to have? I'm going to have the milkshake. Duh, right? Um, so, so you, know, you can know the truth. You, you you can know it intellectually, but unless you know it in in genuine belief and genuine conviction, it's not going to result in a change in your thoughts and attitudes and, and behaviors. Right? So. So truth accords with godliness. They go hand in hand. Knowing the truth, knowledge of the truth goes hand in hand with a godly life. Then Paul says, "Uh, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. Right? Verse 2, in hope of eternal life. Uh, So Christians have a hope or an assurance, a confidence, an expectation of living together with God in heaven after this life is over. And this hope is, is, of eternal life is based on the promise of God. Uh, and, and notice that Paul says that he, it's based on the promise of God who never lies, which is uh, interesting um, because I, I think it's, we should note here kind of a contrast because later we'll see in the first chapter, um, I think it's in the first cha- chapter still where... Um, Paul talks about this proverb, he says that, you know, Cretans are always liars, uh, evil beasts, lazy, lazy gluttons. And um, so it's like Paul is contrasting here, he's, he's, he's taking his time to point out this God that Christians worship never lies. He's a God of truth, he never lies. Because not only were the people of Crete used to lying and dishonesty as a way of life themselves, but even the gods they worshipped, like the Greek god Zeus. Zeus... Was a manipulator. <laughs> he he was a, he was a liar and a, and a manipulator. Uh, if you look at the, the the read about the the stories of Zeus and the, and the things that he did. Um, so, but in contrast to that, the Christians hope and trust is an imitation in who we want to imitate is a God who never lies, a God who is is always true, and it's it's a promise. It's according to a promise of God's right. So the, it might be according to the grace of God. And not according to the works of men. So the Christian's hope doesn't depend on what uh, we do or don't do. It doesn't depend on whether you're smart enough or popular enough or rich enough. And so this this promise is sure. This promise of eternal life is sure because it's based on God's character, which is sure and unchanging. It's you know God cannot lie. And so if God says that whoever believes on His Son has eternal life, and it's impossible for God to lie. Then it 's impossible for those who truly believe in him uh, to be lost. Um, and then so at the end of verse two, we see this phrase, "Promise before the ages began, and hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages begin." <clears throat> the, the phrase in Greek it, um, the a more literal translation might be might say, "Before time eternal." and so the salvation and hope of eternal life was planned by God before time even began. It reminds me of Ephesians 1 where Paul says, God chose us in Him, in in Christ, before the foundation of the world. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace." So our our salvation and the gift and hope of eternal life was planned before the world even began. It wasn't plan B. It it wasn't, you know, plan B after Adam and Eve fell. God didn't plan our salvation as a reaction to Adam and Eve sinning as if he didn't expect it. Um, You know, this was God's plan all along. God created humanity knowing that we would fall into sin and ruin, but also knowing that he would intervene in our behalf. And so the creator and sustainer of all things would receive even greater glory because not only is he our maker he's a, and he's our sustainer, but he also becomes even our savior, becomes the savior of those created in his own, own image. This is the promise of eternal life. God made it before he even laid the foundation of the world. He purposed to save some of those who, who he created before he even created them. It's pretty mind blowing to think about. And in verse three, see, at the proper time uh, God manifested this hope of eternal life. At the proper time he manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. Uh, he, it was manifested in the Word, Paul says. When I think about that, I think about John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. So, the Word is Jesus. The, the revelation and manifestation of the glory, likeness, and character of God in human flesh. You know, before Christ, the way, this way was foreshadowed, but it remained hidden. When Jesus came, the way was revealed. And Jesus said it himself in John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And now that Christ has accomplished the work of salvation through his life, death, and resurrection, that way is proclaimed through his followers to anyone and everyone who will listen. And God has commanded everyone to repent because he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. He's given proof of this, Paul said in, in Acts, by raising him from the dead. That's the message that Paul proclaimed. It's the message that we proclaim. The Gospel. <clears throat> it was a message that Paul was... He says he was entrusted to proclaim it. To preach it. Preaching it. Proclaim. Right? Let's talk about the word preaching real quick. The proclamation. It's a different... It's a, the word in Greek is caruso Or it's a form of the word caruso. The word preaching here. And um, it means to herald or announce publicly. Uh, the Gospel is not a message that's to be confine, confined to the church walls. It's a public proclamation. It's something that's to be proclaimed in the streets and in the markets and in the, the halls of government, uh, college campuses. It's not something to just be whispered to people at the right place at the right time as long as they're ready for it and have no objections. You won't find in the Old or New Testament anywhere where... Uh, an apostle or a prophet ask somebody if they're ready to to hear the word of God really um, so this message is is something that's to be proclaimed to all people uh publicly so i I can't help but just harp on this a little bit because uh being an open air preacher um, and someone who has done this i uh I have to talk about a little bit. One thing that I, I, I um, feel is um, a, uh, a thing in the church that, that there's something that's wrong with the way that um, the church does evangelism today is that we tend to only want to try to invite people in, and like in here is where we'll talk about Jesus. Only only in here, in these, in these church walls. Um, and so we live in a day where there are very few people going out, and, and just and just telling, proclaiming, the good news out there in the world. Uh, we we because it's probably because it's uncomfortable, right? And it, it takes courage. And it you know. But if you see if you look at the New Testament, this is what the Christians did. They went out and they proclaimed out there. They didn't just uh, bring people uh, wait wait to tell people until they got into the church building. Um. In uh, his lectures to my students, Charles Spurgeon once said this. I think this is just an amazing quote. He said, "No sort of defense is needed for preaching out of doors." So, in other words, like outside of a church building, no sort of defense is needed for preaching out of doors. But it would be it would need very potent arguments to prove that a man had done his duty who has never preached beyond the, the walls of his meeting house, or the, the walls of his, the building that his congregation meets at. It would, it would require very potent arguments to prove that a man had done his duty who had never preached beyond the walls of his meeting house. A defense is required rather for services within buildings rather than for worship outside of them. I think it's almost like when you look at a quote like that, it's like I think to myself, it's like we have the our um, understanding backwards. Um, so, in other words, like we shouldn't go up to a, a pastor and um, ask, you know, ask him, "Well, you're not one of those crazy guys who stands on a box downtown, are you?" Right? But, but that's what we—that's kind of how we think. Like you, you, you know, you're, you just you just preach it. At church, right? You're not one of those guys that goes downtown and just like, just, just yells out in public, right? But in fact, our mindset I think should be more like this. Our mentality should be more like this. Tell me, Pastor, have you ever preached the gospel to lost people in a public place? And if not, then shouldn't that make me wonder a little bit about whether you really believe what you say you believe? Because worship is not confined to a church building for Christians. Worship is our life, and worship is public. We proclaim Jesus Christ publicly. And that's what Paul did. He proclaimed Jesus Christ publicly. We see that the gospel is a proclamation that Paul was entrusted to proclaim it. He was commissioned by Christ to preach his good news. <clears throat> and, uh, and then uh, Jesus entrusted it to Paul, to Peter, to other apostles, and then they entrusted it to others after them. Um, and so, who is entrusted to, uh, with, the, with the gospel? Well, Paul's going to talk about that in the rest of this letter. We're going to see that in the rest of chapter 1, chapter 2. Especially chapter 1 with the qualifications, qualifications for elders uh, about who should be entrusted with the message. Um, and, then, uh, and then, of course, in 1 Timothy 3, we also have qualifications for elders in the local church. So Paul says, these are the kinds of men who should be entrusted with the message of the gospel in each generation. And we'll talk about that more uh, on next Sunday. He says to Timothy in in 2 Timothy 2.2, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so by God's grace, this message has continued to be passed down until today. It's a message that we also have been commanded to proclaim. And then finally, verse 4 to Titus. My true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So we see here the relationship between Paul and Titus. That Titus was obviously very dear to Paul. I mean, he he calls Titus my true child in a common faith. So he's like a son to Paul. He was very dear to him. Titus was... Um, part of Paul's family of faith, just like we here at this church are part of a, a family of faith. Um, it's interesting to note one other thing to point out before I get to the conclusion. In verse 3 and in verse 4, you see the Trinity. Or you see at least a, the Trinity alluded to because God, God, or uh, Paul says, entrusted by the command of God our Savior, and then at the end of verse 4, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So God, seemingly referring to the Father, God is our Savior, and Jesus is our Savior. So God the Father purposed to elect uh, to save us, and God the Son who existed with the Father from eternity past became a human being to accomplish our salvation. Um, And this is, you know, grace and peace. This is Paul's usual greeting. In most of his letters, the grace and peace come from God. They only come from God the Father and Jesus through Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's letters are all about. Um, and uh, more than that is what the Bible is all about. It is grace and peace, how people can have peace with God. The Bible is a story of God's grace, his unmerited favor, toward his people throughout all of history. And we can and should rejoice in the reality that we have such a gracious. God he's a God who uh, even though he's never needed anything or anyone decided to create us for his glory Um, he created us to know him and he created us knowing that we would sin against him and even though our sin against this holy God has earned us the penalty of death God decided to treat us better than we deserve not only has has he been patient with us and allowing us to live and sustaining, us, sustaining our lives, He gave us even more. He gave us His one and only Son to be our peace. So that we who were once God's enemies might be able to live forever at peace with Him and with each other. And then Jesus, Jesus came. He was truly God and truly man. He lived a perfect life. Died a substitutionary atoning death. He lived the life that we should have lived but did not live. And he died to take the punishment that our sins deserve upon himself, bearing the wrath of God in our place as our substitute. That's the basis for our peace with God. And that is what we celebrate during communion. And so uh, we're going to celebrate communion this morning. The uh, elements are prepared up here. There's um, We have... Gluten-free crackers and juice. Is that we're going to have the band come back up or no? Yeah, yeah after, okay. Um, and so I invite you guys to, uh, if you're a Christian uh, here this morning, we invite you to uh, celebrate communion with us, um, to partake of the bread, to come up and just, uh, like I said, there's crackers and juice here, or there are also uh, prepackaged um, ones as well. And uh, we invite you to, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, to celebrate communion with us, to take a moment to reflect on the, the life, the death, and resurrection of Christ. Um, to uh, reflect on your own heart and uh, do, uh, do kind of do inventory uh, of uh, any sin that needs to be repented of in your own life and in your own heart, and um, and remember. Uh, what Jesus said to do, he said, this is my body that's been broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he, he gave it to his disciples and said, and this is uh, my blood which is poured out for you, the blood of the new covenant. So I'm going to pray and we will uh, celebrate communion together. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your word that has come to us through your chosen apostles and passed down from generation to generation. We thank you that you are still building your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And um, we thank you for your broken body and your shed blood. We thank you for your sacrifice that you, um, that you chose to save us by giving your life for ours, by being our substitute, by taking our place. And we we love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.